are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 60 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I've got an interview with Sherry Johnson. We talk about her three miscarriages that she suffered and her decision both through, I guess, circumstance and perhaps a little bit of choice not to continue pursuing fertility treatment and instead to find happiness and joy and accept a life without children of her own. So I think it's a really interesting interview and I haven't talked to many people who, I guess, who have gone down that route of accepting a life without kids and, you know, giving up hope, I guess, for that rainbow baby, which many of us so long for. So I think it's it's a really good interview from that perspective. Um, and I also appreciate our little discussion that we have around, I guess, Sherry's tips for finding joy and healing after loss and we talk a bit about meditation which is something that I have tried in the past and and struggled with but I do think that maybe following this conversation I might go back and persevere with it um, a little bit more because I think that it is it is something that can be beneficial I've spoken to so many people I have so many friends who've tried meditation and found it useful and it's not something that comes naturally to me but you know as everything in life the hardest things are often the best. I do have a bit of a podcast announcement before we get into the interview. Um, If you follow me on Instagram, you'll probably seen a post that I posted last week, um, which explains my decision to put the podcast on hold for a bit. So this is episode 60. I've been putting out episodes uh, mostly on a weekly basis for the past, gosh, uh, 15, 16 months. Um, but I have decided that I am going to take a bit of a break from the podcast and I'm not sure at the moment whether this is going to be a sort of temporary pause for, for a few months. I think it'll be at least six months probably, or whether it's a sort of permanent end to the podcast. I think, um, I need to take a break from things and see how I feel after, after a while. I do enjoy doing the podcast. You know, I've always said that I really, I love being able to share people's stories and to raise awareness of baby loss. And I know from what people have said that, you know, people who have suffered a loss um, have found some comfort in hearing other people's stories um, and, you know, particularly where those are relevant or have similarities to their own journey. Um, But I have been struggling for a while with with various things, I guess, trying to juggle stuff with, you know, my own mental health, you know, I um, had a bit of postnatal depression, um, struggling with my own kind of grief, plus trying to parent my wonderful baby, Rowan, (laughs) who is, um, who is an absolute joy, but it's also quite full on, and, you know, trying to juggle full-time motherhood, plus doing this podcast, plus, um, trying to do work and book launches and the other things I've done um, has basically left no time for me at all and no time to to really look after my mental health and then that obviously impacts on on my whole life not just how I feel but you know 
my relationships and all that kind of thing. So I did decide a couple of months ago that I really needed to prioritise and to let go of some stuff. Um, And I think this is something I've been thinking about for a while. I actually strongly considered stopping the podcast before Christmas Um, and my husband kind of persuaded me to continue for a bit and I found the wonderful Izzy to help me edit the show and she has really helped me carry on producing it so thank you Izzy for helping me to to carry on for these extra few months because I I really didn't feel like I was quite ready to stop it then Um, I needed a bit of time to come to terms with it Um, not least because I feel like this is the one thing that maybe I do at the moment to parent Sky and you know I want to be able to parent both my children even though you know Rowan is the one who is here and who is demanding uh, very demanding of my time in a, in a physical sense um you know I don't want to have to push Sky to the back burner as it feels like I sometimes do but you know there are other things we do for her and in particular one of the things at the moment my husband is training for his a big run, swim, bike, hike challenge, which you've heard me talk about on the podcast before. And that requires, you know, a lot of hours of training for him, which means that I need that time. You know, I'm obviously looking after Rowan during that time. Um, and and I don't think we can do both. You know, unfortunately, the, the honest truth is we can't do everything as, as much as I want to do everything all the time. Um, I can't and if he's out doing a bike ride for three or four hours that's time when I can't be working or doing the podcast or doing other stuff so um, I think I'm just having to accept that I have to take a step back from certain things um, and yeah and really focus on me and our family and enjoying this precious time that we've been given with Rowan so I'm really sorry to regular listeners of the podcast um what I will say is that you know all the episodes will still be there I'm not I'm still going to be paying for the hosting so they will all still be available so if you've only just discovered the podcast you know you have 60 episodes to listen to and that's you know if you listen to one episode a week then that takes you through the next year (laughs) Um, and I know it's something that people tend to listen to more during the early days of their of their lost journey um, and I think, you know, it's it's that time when you maybe need that extra bit of support. You want to feel less alone. Um, and I think particularly, you know, over the last year or so when other support groups haven't been open, I hope that it has provided, you know, that support and, you know, helped you feel a little bit less alone. And hopefully now we're coming into summer and vaccinations are on the way and some of these support groups and other mechanisms will open up again. Um, and you'll have these other places. You'll be able to see people in person and talk to people, which will be amazing. So yeah, that's my that's my announcement for today. Um, it kind of also comes, I guess, on the heels of Sky's second birthday, which was last week. Um, so she turned two, <laughs> which seems yeah, which seems kind of crazy. Um, yeah, it's really strange, and I think that that's a bit of a milestone as well. Another year, a very different year from her first year. Um, One that's been harder in some respects, but also I guess has brought us Rowan. So it's brought us that joy and has made made things that little bit lighter perhaps. 
But interestingly, I think, and going back to what I was talking about in terms of my kind of grief and mental health after Rowan arrived, I feel, I feel like I'm not quite there in terms of perhaps some of the the trauma around Sky's birth. And I kind of hesitate to talk about this because I, f- I always feel that like compared to many people's experience, both of loss and kind of what I think about when I think about like PTSD and trauma, like I didn't maybe have, you know, that bad an experience. But I guess what I would say, and you always have to put yourself in the position of what would you say if this was your like best friend? And if I was talking to my best friend, I think, well, it's how you experienced it is how much trauma in inverted commas there were it's not necessarily what the event is it's your experience of it and how that has affected you moving on and certainly when I was talking to my health visitor about this um a couple of months ago and talking about some of the things I'm experiencing particularly around events that I find triggering um and actually find more triggering now than I did a year ago. So things around baby loss, around, you know, babies being injured or put in these situations, and I find them exceptionally triggering. And that has made the podcast a little bit harder, maybe, to to record some of these episodes recently. And then when I was talking to my health visitor about it, she was like, you know, I think you have some PTSD, and I think you need some trauma therapy for this. So that is something that I am trying to trying to access, though, again, the NHS isn't being particularly helpful with this. But anyway, that is that's a rant for another day. <laughs> um, and yeah, again, and then that's something else that I have to find time for. And, you know, at the moment, I have very little time. So I think in my long and rambling way, you know, I ramble a bit on these introductions. Um I think that's the conclusion I've come to is that I just need to focus a bit on myself and put the podcast on hold for a bit. So this is the last interview there will be for a while. I will still be around on Instagram, um, probably, you know, not as much as I maybe have been in the past, but I'll still be checking in and, you know, you can still email me um, or get in touch on podcast you can message me. And I just wanted to thank everyone who has supported the podcast um, over the past 15, 16 months, particularly my patrons who have helped me continue the show kind of financially. And also, you know, your support has really made me realise how valuable it is. And to everyone who's listened, to left a review, who's commented on my Instagram posts, thank you so, so much for your support. It really means the world to me. And hopefully this is not the end and I'll be back in the future. There are plenty of other podcasts now, perhaps there weren't when I started, but there are other podcasts now which deal with baby loss and talk to people about loss and grief. Um, So I'd encourage you to check those out because they're really great podcasts. Okay, so I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I'm going to let you get into today's interview because it's a great one to finish on. I think the topic of healing and finding joy after loss was something that I was striving for when I first started this podcast. So I'm delighted that Sherry could share her words of wisdom with us to wrap up this season. Take care and goodbye. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Sherry Johnson. Following her own experiences of infertility and pregnancy loss, Sherry dedicated herself to helping other women find joy after loss. So welcome to the podcast, Sherry. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Alison. 
Brilliant. Well, we've got a bit of a theme for this episode, which is how to live a joyful life after loss. But I'd first like to talk a bit about your story and your own experience of um, pregnancy loss, infertility and grief. So could you start by maybe going back to the beginning when you first decided you wanted to try for a baby and what your experience has been? Sure, absolutely. Um, My first pregnancy was actually unplanned, so we hadn't spent a lot of time talking about it. Um, But I had been kind of starting to live this natural life. And so I went off the birth control pill in January. And in May, my sister, you know, was complaining about feeling nauseous. And my sister was the one who said, "Mm, are you pregnant? And I kind of went, oh, that never even occurred to me that it would happen so quickly. And and I was 39 at the time. So, you know, that was even less of a, or more of a shock, actually. But my, my husband and I were ecstatic. We were so excited. We had been together for a while. And yeah, we were quite excited. I was already, I think, seven or eight weeks along by that point. And so we really started to get down to planning and naming and Mm -hmm. all the things with the first pregnancy yeah and then it was you want me to dive right into the the next part yeah 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 (laughs) listen to this podcast you kind of know how this goes you have like this joy of this kind of exactly pregnancy and this naivety and stuff and then it's okay and then what happened when things started to go wrong yeah and it was naivety it never even occurred to me that something could go wrong and it was at, I was almost 12 weeks when I started to spot and went to the doctor. Doctor, of course, said, well, it's probably nothing to worry about, but we'll schedule in, schedule you in for a scan the next day. And before the next day arrived, I basically delivered the fetus, but not the sack. So I had a very strange experience in that I had no pain, I had no real bleeding, the baby just kind of slipped out of me. Gosh, and I can imagine that must that must have been slightly confusing based on, I don't know what your, your sort of knowledge of, of miscarriage was, but certainly, you know, I think when you haven't experienced it, you maybe just think there's a lot of blood and a lot of pain and, you know, this must have been quite confusing, but also maybe traumatic in a slightly different way because it didn't go down that kind of normal normal route. Exactly. I was very confused. I was like, what just happened? And is, I mean, this is getting into a lot of detail, but I the baby wasn't really recognizable. So I didn't know if that was the baby or not. Mm-hmm. And I remember calling the doctor and saying, I'm not in any pain. I called the nurse when in Canada, we have like telehealth. It's like a nurse hotline. It was nighttime. And she said, go to the emergency. So I went to the emergency room. I sat there for, I don't know, two or three hours before I finally said, okay, I'm going to go home. I already have an ultrasound scheduled for the next day because the doctor had already ordered that. And, and I didn't, I I felt fine. So I went home and the next day went for my scan and the, the technician said, I'm, I'm not seeing an 11 week old fetus here. Um, so that was the, 
the moment when she told me what I already knew, really. I mean, you know it in your heart. So I came home pretty brokenhearted. My husband didn't quite feel the same way I did or didn't really understand what I was going through. And I'm not very good at showing my emotions on the outside. So I don't think we were really in a spot where we communicated really well on the Mm. whole loss. And I I guess it's hard because it's less real to him or it was less real to him at that point. I guess particularly because, you know, you haven't got a massive bump and, you know, you haven't maybe got to those later stages of planning. And you obviously have got all these changes going on with your body and you can feel feel all of this stuff happening and you were the one who had to go through that traumatic experience but I guess for him he's almost slightly detached from it in a way I know I've spoken to other sort of dads on this podcast and and about miscarriage and you know how it's you know in some cases it sounds off with but it's taken them several miscarriages for them to actually sort of process and really come to terms with that aspect of grief and loss yeah 100% I don't think he felt it. He had also just lost his own brother a few weeks before. So, or a few weeks before we we knew we were pregnant. So he was going through his own grief. And this was, I think, almost just like a little blip for him in his much greater world of, of loss. So, and yes, you're, you're absolutely right. He didn't experience that trauma. He didn't actually come to the hospital. He dropped me off there and I said, I'm fine. I'm, you know, <laughs> I told him to go home and, um, you know, he picked me up three hours later and, and, uh, it, it just, yeah, it, it's not the same for him. He, he wasn't there for all of it. He didn't experience it. It's not his body. Yeah. And how did you feel like emotionally after that loss? You know what? It's really strange. I actually, I mean, I was sad, but I didn't feel the way I see a lot of other women experiencing loss. You know, even within my own client base, I there's much more trauma and upset than I felt at the time. I realized later and then having gone through a second and a third loss that my grief just doesn't always show up in the same way that it does for other people. I had a lot of other emotions that I just didn't identify as grief. Mm -hmm. So that was a big kind of awakening for me to realize that grief can show up in so many different ways and crying and deep sadness isn't always one of them yeah I mean anger is a big one for me (laughs) like I know I'm grieving when I feel really angry and irritable at everyone and everything (laughs) absolutely Um, which isn't really a very pleasant emotion well for me or for other people um but yeah it is what it is isn't it yeah so did you did you sort of so that first um that first pregnancy was slightly unexpected was your second pregnancy did you decide to try and get pregnant again fairly quickly or what happened after that Mm. so our first pregnancy we weren't married yet and so we got engaged very shortly after our loss and then 
got married about six months later and I was still, I actually wanted to get pregnant very quickly. I wanted to get pregnant right away. I was 39. The, the clock was ticking, but my hormones didn't balance for a very long time. It took me a long time to actually, um, I didn't actually uh, to step back a second. <laughs> it took me, I think seven or eight weeks to actually release the sack. Oh, so gosh. I tried mesoprostol first at the doctor's recommendation and it didn't work. I had horrendous labor pain. You know, I went through all the motions, but nothing happened otherwise. So, and I didn't want a DNC. I was also in the middle of a move to another city. I had my, <laughs> I had gotten reorganized at work. So I was under an entirely new boss and a new job. And quite honestly, my thought at the time was, I don't have time to go to the hospital. I need to get, I went right back to work. You know, in hindsight, it's, it's almost ludicrous what I was putting myself through. Yeah. And I said, I sometimes think that is also a bit of a defense mechanism as well. In terms of grief, it's just like, oh, I, this is what I do. It's fine. I'm done. Like I'm a strong woman. I've done this. It's done. It's over. We'll move on, get on with things. Yes. And I was known for that. Like, I, my family knew me as like the, the stoic one, the one who's strong and, you know, holds on to her emotions and doesn't get flustered. And, um, so that was my shtick that, you know, that was the way that I dealt with things. So it was, um, you know, I also mentioned earlier, I was going through this whole natural revolution and, and didn't want, you know, I knew I was going to prepare for another baby. So I didn't want any more drugs in me. I didn't want an anesthetic. I just wanted natural. So it took me seven or eight weeks before I released the sack. I went to a naturopath and tried all kinds of natural things and that eventually worked. But after that, it took months before my period came back. Mm -hmm. And then after we got married, it was another, it was two years before I got pregnant again. So mm -hmm. infertility in between there was um was rampant yeah and I guess that must have been quite hard perhaps given that you got pregnant so easily the first time you kind of almost have go in with this kind of expectation then it will happen again and I guess you know particularly you might have been conscious that that horrible biological clock is ticking and yeah how was that how was that experience for you exactly like you just said mm -hmm. yeah and and because I was on this natural journey I thought well my body got pregnant so quickly the first time, this time, you know, I shouldn't have a problem. And I kept holding out and holding out. And, and it was a long time before I went to a fertility doctor. And actually, right when I did, we had planned to start IUI, which I'm surprised in, in hindsight that he didn't recommend that I go straight to IVF. But we tried IUI first. And just before I was to start my first cycle, I found out I was pregnant again. So mm. I think that kind of happens to a lot of people too, from what I hear, you know, you're, yeah. you kind of finally let go and say, all right, I'm just going to go. Mm -hmm. We're going to try fertility treatments. And then suddenly it happens. Okay. And what happened with that pregnancy? That one was, um, uh, similar to the first in terms of the first few weeks and then at nine weeks this time I was actually scheduled to go for an ultrasound the next week and 
on the Friday, it was Thanksgiving weekend in Canada, and I was visiting my parents. We're planning on telling them about the pregnancy that weekend. And then Friday night, we were out with some friends, and I started to feel this weird pain and then miscarried overnight. So the next day was not a tell my parents the good news. It was a tell them the bad news, really, all in one shot. I was pregnant, and now I'm not. And did that happen, that sounded like it happened much quicker than the sort of long, drawn-out process you had for the first one. It did. Um, It all happened in that one night, and then I was just bleeding for the rest of the week. And I was at my parents, like, staying with them, too, so it was really sort of not ideal (laughs) that I wasn't even at home. But the odd thing about that one... I went because it happened naturally. I, you know, I called the doctor and and she said, "Okay, let's just let things happen naturally, and then come in for a scan and and make sure things are all okay." And at that point, went for the scan, and before I even got home, the ultrasound technician was, or the radiologist actually called me and said, "You need to go to the emergency. We think you might still be pregnant." So my, you know, I immediately think, oh my gosh, I'm excited for about two minutes. And then he says, we think you might be having an ectopic. Oh. So I didn't even know really what an ectopic was at the time. Um, It turns out it wasn't. I just had some sort of tissue or something in the entrance of my uterus that looked like a fibroid or a, um, they weren't quite sure, but that led to a whole series of tests and um, MRIs and some, not laparoscopic surgery, but, um, I forget what it's called where they go in with a scope and checked it out. And actually that leads me right into the third loss because when I was in the hospital for that surgery, I also ha- I happened to be on the second day of my cycle. So I had them test my FS, uh, FS, um, FSH. And I want to say this for those people, those listeners who are going through this, my FSH was 17, which is really high. And you wouldn't expect someone to be able to get pregnant on an FSH of 17. But the moment I came out of that surgery and the doctor said, everything looks great. Uterus looks healthy, healthy liner, you know, everything looks beautiful. And I think that just after six months of tests and all this stuff, I just let go. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think that that, the, the stress, just letting that all go, just allowed me to then get pregnant the, the ver- that very cycle. And it was when my FSH was at 17. So I say that because... I don't think you should even be able to get pregnant at, at or they don't think you can get pregnant enough at a, an FSH that high, but it is possible. Um, so the, the doctors aren't always right. They're not always... There's always an exception to the rule, isn't there? <laughs> there is, and I think it happens more often than they think. It's just they have the stats in front of them and the stats scare us. So we listen to them, but then... There's so many cases where it's it doesn't work or it does yeah, work. Yeah, it's like a balance of probability, isn't it? It's like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, if you say something is like 98% effective, well, that's still 2% of people, you know, of, of times it's not going to be effective or vice versa. You know, there's always an exception, exception to the rule. 
Okay, so this was your third pregnancy. How were you feeling going into it when you found out you were pregnant given your two previous losses? Well, by now I was pretty worried. I really hadn't done any kind of healing emotional work before I got to that third pregnancy mm-hmm. or my first or second. So I I had been to therapy, but it was more because and not because I was trying to heal myself from my losses. It was more because I, I thought I was somehow energy energetically sabotaging my chances of getting pregnant. So I had been seeing a therapist, but I hadn't really healed from my last losses. So I went into that pregnancy with worry. I was checking every time I went to the bathroom. I was trying to be excited, but couldn't... I couldn't be. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, I think that's the case with pretty much any pregnancy after loss. And I do think, you know, a lot of the time it is quite common, unless you have infertility issues. You know, people do want to get pregnant again quite soon after after they've lost a baby, sort of whatever stage that's, that's at. And I think because sort of healing and grief and stuff takes so long, it's quite rare that you will probably go into that fully healed as it were if you can ever be fully healed from something like that well in hindsight so part of me agrees with you but another part of me knows that or believes that that is one of the biggest mistakes that we that women make that we make that i made is to first of all there's two first of all it's going into that next pregnancy without having done some of that healing And the second one is to believe that it has to be filled with worry. And I don't think it does. Having done the healing that I've done now, it doesn't have to take as long as we think. There's there's ways that you can actually heal quite quickly in a way that will allow you to move into that pregnancy feeling more excited than most do right now. Yeah, okay, well... Let's come on to that as part of (laughs) a later discussion because I'd be really interested in terms of hearing a bit more about that. Yeah, and I, sorry, I want to say that that is a real, we'll get back to that, but it's, I, I'm laughing because your reaction is, is really normal and I felt that way too. Yeah, and, and I do, and I do. I guess my reaction was not to disagree with you because I do think it is possible. I'm not sure that it's possible for everyone. And I think often, you know, there are a lot of different factors in terms of which influence your decision on if you if you even have a choice over when you get pregnant, you know, and let's face it, not everyone does. Yes. Mm-hmm. And your decision on that. And there's a whole host of factors that go into that based on your health, your age and all of those things. And just as a slight tangent and aside, Interestingly, after I lost my daughter, I was like, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take some time to get myself mentally, you know, I know pregnancy after loss is going to be hard. I'm going to take some time to get myself mentally sorted. I'll have three months and then, (laughs) and then I'll think about it. And clearly like (laughs) that just didn't happen. And I did, you know, I, I, I got to a better place, but I wouldn't say I was healed. Um, And I think also, I guess, sort of linking to what I was saying before I think it does depend a lot on your experience of loss and the specific circumstances around that which then might be triggering kind of when you come around to a pregnancy after loss 
But anyway, tangents. Let's get back to you for a minute and, and finish your story before we move on to those sort of more general topics. Um, so we're back with your third pregnancy. Yeah, so after that third loss, so that happened, um, it was a little bit earlier. Well, it. I don't know if it would have been or not. I, I had an early ultrasound because I started bleeding. So I actually because I was so in touch with the doctor already with my OBGYN, uh, she had me come in for an ultrasound at six weeks, right when I first started bleeding. And the ultrasound showed that it was some sort of lesion in my uterus, but it wasn't actually anywhere near the baby. So she sent me home thinking, this is probably just a blip and come back in a week and we'll see how things look. And when I went back, oh, but so in that scan, that was the first time that I had ever had a scan and heard the baby's heartbeat. So this was a much different pregnancy. Did that make it feel more real? Definitely. Yeah, it did. It made it feel more real. It's it, that excitement came rushing in, seeing the baby on the monitor, all of that, having had that experience that did make that pregnancy very different and then it it also made me that much more worried about losing it so a week later I went back for another scan and there was no heartbeat so this was different in that I think quite often the baby dies before like you don't even know and you actually miscarry several weeks later it can be even many weeks later without even knowing that it's happened. And when you have that ultrasound and hear that there's no no heartbeat, there's a tendency to want to do something right then and there because you know that it's, you no longer have a life inside of you. So this time I was much more open to a DNC, although my OBGYN didn't recommend it this time. She said, I think you should just let it go for a bit. And actually I did uh, that first when we had that ultrasound, that second ultrasound, and she said there was no heartbeat. I actually didn't really believe it at first. I kind of wanted to hang on for a little bit because I had this hope that maybe the ultrasound was wrong. It was so early. It's only seven weeks. I know that there's, you know, Google tells me that there's sometimes ultrasounds at that stage where you can't hear the heartbeat at all. And it's quite normal. So I had this hope that it was still there and and it was just a, you know, a botched ultrasound. And she said, well, we can schedule another one in a week and see, and see what happens then. And so we did, and there still was no heartbeat. So at that point, I did try the um, mesoprostol first and that worked. And so it didn't take long. And this time I was also... I didn't want it to drag on. I didn't want to wait for it to happen naturally. I just, I was in such a different place emotionally. And after your third one, I think without having healed from my first two, that emotional trauma and the grief, it, it sort of accumulates. And I felt it much more on this third one. Yeah, I was going to ask if your grief was different. I think you just put it really well in terms of it kind of piling up it's almost like a grief debt isn't it and you're just adding to it and adding to it Mm -hmm. how 
how did you feel then after that third miscarriage about trying again or waiting or you know how you were gonna heal yourself after that I really dove into healing that was when I I had already been going to therapy but I I hadn't seen her in a while but I dove into my spiritual healing I started following spiritual healers Gabby Bernstein was a big one I ended up going to her spiritual coaching programs uh, her level one and two and started meditating journaling using essential oils I was doing everything crystals you name it all the spiritual stuff I dove into that and I was also doing lots of physical stuff I'm, I'm a nutritionist my background so I I was doing lots of lots of physical healing as well and realized how related they were and and that was really kind of a game changer for me going through that whole process when I actually spent that time on myself. And and can I ask were you were you 100% focused on I am doing this for me or did you still have at the back of your mind I am doing this to prepare myself for another pregnancy. That's a really great question. And I'm trying to think back to my mindset at the time. It was probably a combination, but there was also a big part of me that had already, I had already started my business by then. So I had already started to I had, I had a business doing nutrition coaching for fertility and that started really after my first, uh, right after my second miscarriage, right around that time. And that morphed into miscarriage recovery and pregnancy loss recovery. And so part of why I was doing that was to serve them also, because I thought, well, how can I teach other women how to heal physically and emotionally without healing myself first? So I had to do that for them, but I also was doing it for me. And I also was still at the time planning another pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I think it was really a combination. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because I do think, I mean, I think, I think it's hard to let go of that hope of another pregnancy for one thing, if, if that's still on your mind. And I think, you know, I, th- I think for many people, there is still that focus on the end goal is having a baby. And that, you know, that is still the end goal we're working to, which kind of leads me on to the next bit I'd like to talk about, which was so at that point, you were, you know, you were still had sort of pregnancy, hopefully on on your mind. But at some point, you did decide not to continue with fertility treatment or explore other routes to parenthood and you know I think this is something I really wanted to talk about because I think a lot of the time what I see in the baby loss community is that it feels like having a baby is the only end goal and the only sort of route to happiness and for some people that that maybe is the case and if they're unable to you know have their own baby for whatever reason they may choose to explore other routes such as surrogacy, donor conception, adoption 
but there aren't that many people I've come across who talk about finding happiness after loss without a baby and with accepting that sort of acceptance that I guess you have to come to that you you won't be parents in that sense. So could you tell us a bit about what factored into your decision as a couple and how you came to be okay with not having kids? Yeah, that's I'm glad you asked that actually. So we did go through I think it was another whole year and a half of trying. We had three IUI cycles all failed and then it got to the point where we finally said okay it's time to try IVF and by this time I was I think I was 43 or 44 so we had been through those three IUI cycles I again I don't know why the doctors didn't say go straight like go to IVF I didn't know how futile IUI was going to be. And I, I thought that the chances of us getting pregnant were going to be so much more, so much greater than they were. But anyways, I, it, I think that was the way it was meant to be. And, and we got to the point where we, we decided to go the IVF route. Suddenly there was all these other tests that I didn't even know about, which I was kind of like, how did, how did we not have these tests before? Like all this kind of stuff came to the surface that I just didn't even know existed. And we, and the doctor actually, after all of that said, I think you should try a donor egg. And he felt that my, um, my hormones were just, it was, I, I didn't have enough quality eggs left to try to to extract um, and so that was a big decision funny enough my twin sister was going through the same thing at the same time and and so she was the one who actually shed this little bit of wisdom which I never even thought to ask so if you have listeners who are considering a donor egg I mean there are so many emotions that go into that you know my husband and I talked about okay, how am I going to feel when it's your sperm and someone else's egg? So this is your child more than mine. Or oh, the idea of having someone else's egg inside me or the idea of the whole, you know, the whole thing of the, the physical aspect of having to go through all of that because it is quite invasive. How are we going to choose a donor? There's so many aspects and it can really <laughs> do a number on your mental health. And uh, this bit of wisdom that my sister shared with me that her husband thought to ask the doctor was how much of that baby will be the mother, like meaning me. And the doctor said, well, even with donor eggs, you know, the, the mom has red curly hair and there's, you know, it's a completely different donor, but that baby comes out with red curly hair. So there is this, you know, that baby is being nourished by, by your blood, by my blood throughout that whole process at nine months, there is exchange of DNA. There's exchange of cells. So that baby is yours. So if, if you're someone out there, I have to say this for your listeners, if you're balking at the donor egg idea because 
you think it won't be yours, it will be. It just becomes yours. So I had to get that out, but we did decide ultimately not to go that route for a whole bunch of reasons. And one of them was my husband who, I don't know, sometimes I think the guy is, is the less inclined or maybe a little more fearful of being a parent. I don't know. But on top of it, my husband also has a spinal cord injury. So he uses a wheelchair and that comes with all kinds of additional fears and emotions about being a dad. And he said to me, I'm afraid that having a child is going to be a daily reminder of what I can't do as a dad. And it was the first time he had ever really opened up in that way to me to really express his fears. And it shifted something in me too. It, it provided me some understanding of where he was coming from. And it was what made me question, can I live a life without a child of our own? And after a lot of kind of self-exploration and, and thought and discussion, we decided that we could live a happy, joyful life without having children of our own. That must have been a really hard decision to come to because it, it is a conscious decision. It's not just like, oh, well, you know, maybe we'll get pregnant and we'll just like not use birth control and see what happens and, you know, and let nature take its course. It's like, no, we have a conscious decision to make here. And and we have to kind of make it quite quickly as well. It's not something we can say, oh, let's leave it five years or 10 years and see how we feel then. It's, you know, yes, we can take a bit of time to think about it, but but we need to decide. And this is, this is kind of it I guess this is the end game either we go one way or we or we go the other day other way and you know you've you've almost made it sound quite simple there but I'm sure that emotionally there must have been some sleepless nights and I don't know long walks or whatever you do to kind of contemplate and and try and think think through all these different options and come to that decision definitely and I will tell you it it was not a one and done decision it was, you know, we made the decision and then, you know, a few months later, my sister got pregnant and then nine months later she had her baby and I thought maybe we should, maybe we should try this again. And then six months after that, my, my sister-in-law had a baby and then again, it came up and I thought, okay, I'm still 45. There's still women who get pregnant at 45. You know, there was still that little chance that every once in a while I would go back and and say, what if I regret this? Or what if I could have a baby naturally? Or what if, what if, what if? So it, it definitely was a process. It wasn't a, okay, we've made the decision. I mean, we did make the decision, but then I still went back on it. My husband never did. <laughs> he was, it was a one and done for him. But, but for me, it was, it was a process for sure. That sort of, brings me on to the sort of the the sort of theme thing we wanted to discuss which is around finding joy after loss and in your case finding joy after loss and in a life without children and actually one of one of the themes when I set up this podcast was learning to live again after baby loss and and I set that out in the beginning because that's what I 
wanted and needed to be able to do and I wanted almost the podcast to give me the answers <laughs> to that so I'm quite glad you've come on and suggested this as a topic for discussion <laughs> because awesome. I think I mean I think it's something that's really hard in the early days it's really hard to even imagine that you can be happy again and I think and I think that and again different people different groups and different sort of time scales you can't really put a time scale on this but there often does feel and I still feel now that there's, part, there's there's a heaviness, kind of a heaviness inside me, I guess, that is hard to lift. So I'm really interested to hear how you've learned to find joy after loss. And I guess what are some of your thoughts or tips for how people can heal themselves? Yeah, so, so the first thing I had to shift was that belief that once I have my baby in my arms, all the rest of this is going to go away. I think that was the biggest shift for me. And and what made me realize that was really an exploration of my triggers. So everybody has them, right? It's if you've never, if you haven't had your first baby, it's every woman who's pregnant. It's everyone who asks you when are you getting pregnant. It's you know, it's all those things. But even if you've had your first baby and then you have a loss, then it becomes the mom who has two children because you want to have your second. And so that person triggers you and, and it goes on and on. And when I started to explore what was underneath of those triggers, I realized that it actually didn't have that much to do with a baby. It had a lot more to do with pain that that begins way back in usually childhood grade seven seventh grade eighth grade you know particularly those formative years when you're you know becoming a teenager and you're going through those really difficult years at age 12 and 13 you know that sense of belonging my triggers came from wanting to be a part of the motherhood club and not being able to get there and I had felt that a dozen times before, you know, right back to when I was, you know, a a child. So it was part of my healing, the healing of those triggers and going back and understanding where that was coming from in the first place, that sense of belonging, that feeling of not being enough to be part of the motherhood club or whatever club it was throughout my, my years on earth that was that was the pain that was being triggered and this infertility these losses were just a manifestation it it was the wound that was being pressed on so once i realized that that allowed me to say okay what else can i heal and there was all kinds of things that I was able to bring to the surface by doing that kind of exploration. So that was what kind of catalyzed my whole journey, which I then kind of realized. So one of the first steps that I had to do and that I didn't even realize I was doing was learning how to, to care and love for my and love myself because most of us have those triggers because we feel unworthy or we feel like we're not enough in some way or we feel like we're flawed. We feel like we're broken. And 
And I think, actually, I'm just going to interrupt you here. Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think also there's something around um, societal expectations and perhaps expectations of others that we want to live up to, whether those expectations are expressed or not. And I'm thinking, you know, just off the top of my head, and this, this may or may not be the case in, in your situation, but our parents and the, the desire to be grandparents. And certainly I think that, you know, because one of the triggers or one of the things I found particularly hard when I lost Sky was was having to tell my parents. And I, you know, I felt that I had let them down because I had not given them, you know, that grandchild, which they were clearly longing for. And I think, you know, and they, they have never, you know, never said any expectation that, you know, we were procreating, give them a grandchild. But I feel like, you know, society kind of expects that. And often, you know, parents who have their children, you know, that that experience of being a grandparent is something that they look forward to. So I feel like that there's maybe those and again, going back to that probably goes back to childhood and stuff as well. But there's those kind of external expectations and perhaps letting go of those is also a big part of kind of being able to heal yourself and move on from that. Yes, definitely. You just hit on something that was really a huge part of what I had to explore was it was a question I kept asking myself when we were trying to make the decision whether we were going to quit fertility treatments or move forward I kept asking myself am I doing this because society tells me that I have to be a mother because my 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 own mother is telling me she wants to be a grandmother like how much of this feeling of wanting to be a mother myself is my own and I never really got a, a true answer to that I mean I we ultimately decided okay I am okay with not being a mother but I absolutely had to find a way to let go of all of those societal beliefs and, and those expectations that they put on us that you are not worthy unless you're a mother. And, you know, there were, there were things that have come up throughout my adulthood that made me believe that too. I mean, I had someone say to me once before I even started having kids, but it stuck with me. She was talking about another couple who chose not to have kids. And she said something to the effect of, I don't think they can possibly know selflessness because they've never had children. And that, you know, then I suddenly had this belief that I'm selfish if I make this decision not to have children. I mean, you could equally argue that the other way in terms of, well, I'm not going to get into it, but, you know, resources on the planet, blah, 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 you know, and, you know, you know, bringing a child into the world if you don't really want that child is arguably the most selfish act of all. <laughs> yeah, that's a really yeah. great point. And I never thought of that in as I was going through this. <laughs> but yeah, that's... Yeah, that, that feel, yeah, and it feels like she's definitely... That's definitely a very one-sided comment. I mean, because I, I have quite a few friends, actually, who have chosen not to have children. And and I think, actually, that has been... I think that's really helpful. I think when, when you're potentially thinking about, well, what happens if my future doesn't involve children, is is having friends who, who you can see living happy, normal lives without children. Because I think perhaps if you're 
surrounded and all your friends have children and you feel like you're the one who's getting left behind and you're the only one who's not in as you said that club then I think that can make you feel even more isolated and even more like like you're a bit of an odd one out and a bit of a failure perhaps definitely yeah those are all things that I had to explore yeah and going back to I think I started to talk about self-love and self-care and and that became something that was so much more than than a bath and a massage it was it was truly learning how to nurture myself and and drawing on the support of of the universe and my or my higher self or my intuition whatever you want to call it instead of expecting others to understand or expecting others to support me which is how I went through most of my losses, I really had to turn that around and say, how can I support myself? What do I truly need in this moment? And how can, how can I, how can I take care of myself in a way that's going to allow me to make the right decisions for myself? I'm, I'm really glad you said that because I do feel um, that this kind of self-care world is bandied around and often associated with bubble baths and hot mm-hmm. chocolate and I'm a big fan of both bubble baths and hot chocolate <laughs> but I think you know you know particularly once you felt the depth of baby loss you know that that is not really touching the surface of what's going on and what kind of healing and stuff you need so could we maybe just delve into that a bit more could you maybe give us um I guess a few sort of practical examples for how you might go about doing that particularly you know for the people who are listening to this in the situation you're in when you've been through such a sort of traumatic experience so I did listen to a few of your podcasts Alison and but I couldn't quite get a sense of how how spiritual they are so this might be a little woo-woo for some of them (laughs) Okay, that's fine. (laughs) One of the most amazing things that I did for myself, and I learned this, I, I sort of learned this from Gabby Bernstein. I started meditating. I was meditating already, but one of the things that I meditated on, I I started doing more of a guided visualization. I believe that that meditation is not just sitting there and trying to quiet your mind. You can use meditation in a way that allows you to to heal so i started using visualization during my meditation and one of the things that i did i envisioned angels surrounding me behind me even and embracing me and bringing me all the support that i needed and all of the love that i was looking for in other people And that kind of visualization can honestly put you in a state of, of pure joy. It can actually, it's that powerful. It can really make you feel supported and loved and nurtured. And that was something that really was revolutionary for me. Hmm. Um, and I have to say, I do. I I am not a very good meditator. I believe in the power of meditation. I really do because you know I know so many smart people who have used it and and have found it a really powerful tool. And I think it's it more speaks to my sort of 
I guess, lack of self-discipline and, and the way my mind works and that I struggle to kind of focus on and, and kind of, I guess, dedicate the time needed to uh, to properly embrace it. And and I think you also have to go in with the right mindset, don't you? You have to believe that, that this is going to work and that this is going to help me um, and go in with that positive mindset, which I have to say I struggle with, but that is, that is my failing, not the meditation thing. <laughs> um, so yeah so I you know I do believe so and it's not something really that I've I think I've touched on it with a few of my guests and I also have guests who you know have found faith particularly helpful um when they've been kind of navigating navigating grief or or loss um but I think sort of what you're talking about is slightly different is more of a kind of general spiritual approach um to that and I guess whether it's visualization of angels or visualization of maybe even I guess a physical person supporting you what matters is that it's 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 visualizing what you need the specific thing you need and and then going through that process so it becomes real to you in the same way as you might um, okay, I'm going to take a sporting analogy here because I've used visualization a lot when rock climbing. And, you know, you visualize the moves you are doing on that climb. And that's how you get into almost that flow state, I guess, to get up it. And it's a similar thing, isn't it? I'm guessing. She says, as a very inexpert, terrible, self-confessed meditator. <laughs> <laughs> that's That's exactly it. It's, you know, we kind of think of meditation as such a I mean, I, I remember before I meditated, or before I learned, I, I was very afraid of it. I sort of thought of it as this kind of thing that I couldn't do. I'm not going to be able to quiet my mind. I, I'm, I'm afraid to walk into a room of people who are meditating because I have no idea what to do. I don't know. It just felt really scary for some reason. And, and then once I realized that it doesn't have to be this, it doesn't even have to be a really spiritual thing. It could just be sitting down, laying in your bed, and doing that kind of visualization, whether it's rock climbing or mm. or visualizing a person giving you that that hug that you need. And I think it's sort of going, and I also wanted to just go back and pick up on that point, which you said, which is not about emptying your mind. Because I also, so while I, I, I can't do that empty my mind thing, like I just find it so hard, but what I do- Nobody can, by the way. But what I do, find really helpful is I have I guess some guided meditation tracks and visualization tracks and I did use those quite a lot um when I was pregnant so pregnant after loss so with my son and and it's kind of talking through and the one I've got I'm just going to go through the one I've got which is like you're in this room and then you go through this door and you're in this like arctic wasteland and you have the sound of like the snow blowing and then you go to your igloo and and this track goes on for about 20 minutes and it talks you through this and i i find that and i wouldn't say i get into a meditative state but i have found that quite helpful and sometimes i can kind of sink in to that place i guess and imagine myself in that in that place and that does that does relax me sometimes so i guess maybe i'm taking little tiptoes in the right direction that's all it is that's all it is is it there is no i mean sure there's there's different states i suppose that people can get into um and there are points where you can feel like quite in a state of joy or in a state of uplifting or enlightenment that that people talk about but sometimes it's just 
it's just doing what exact exactly what you just said it's it's just kind of imagining following along with a guided meditation and if you can visualize yourself in the place that that they're guiding you to that is a meditative state mm, and it's just it's finding peace isn't it and i think it's it's just it's not so much emptying your mind it's focusing on something that then i guess pushes everything else to the outside so it's not as intrusive yeah definitely exactly mm. yeah and you can use it to heal like to, to really focus in on specific things that you are struggling with so i used it to i use it now even if i'm triggered by something it doesn't even matter what i use it in my you know i'm, I'm not really that triggered by pregnancy anymore but in fact i'm not at all anymore but i'm triggered by other things and i'll use it to say to ask myself what's beneath this what's what is this trigger all about so there's there's ways you can start to use it to your advantage in a way and you said that you, that you you're not triggered at all by pregnancy anymore obviously as i mentioned you know everyone's grief has different timescales so there's nothing like oh it will take you x months or x years of doing this and you will be healed in inverted commas but can i ask how long was i guess your process of healing to reach this stage i think that's a hard question to answer because it really i didn't try to heal like the time i had my first loss in 2012 mm. but and my my last one was in 2015 and but i didn't really try to heal until after that it was probably 2017 so i was triggered all the time throughout until it was really in that last year that uh, I guess that would have been 2018 that I really started to focus on my own healing and trying to get underneath of these triggers and trying to understand all of my emotions and, you know, awaken my spiritual healing. And so it was probably, I mean, I still have moments where I'm triggered and it's hard to distinguish what's as a result of, of my grief versus something else that's going on in my life but I'm definitely so it depends on the person too so my sister so I I made the decision not to like we that was 2018 when we made the decision not to to try anymore and nine months later my sister had her baby and I wasn't triggered at all so that was just you know a year into my own figuring out how to do this how to heal but then I was triggered by my sister-in-law and I think it was really because she was such a different person from me and she takes care of her body in a very different way than I do and has different beliefs about you know about what you should eat and what you shouldn't and and all of that so you know under the guise of I'm thinking of the baby's health really it was me kind of thinking I know better and I realized that I was really being triggered by that that it was it wasn't so much her being pregnant as her being not taking care of herself in the way that I thought she should and that was a different a different trigger 
It was a different feeling that was underneath of all of my other envy triggers. So all that to say, I was able to shift the envy of, of, of other people getting pregnant within a few months, but it still pops back in every once in a while when there's something else for me to heal. And I think that, I think that is always going to be the case with grief as well. Uh, you know, I think, you know, and I think obviously everyone's experience is different, but maybe, you know, if you lose a baby at a later stage or sort of during birth or after birth and then an infant, you know, that, that baby really was a person to you you know it was it was your child in the same way and some people find that with early losses as well you know some for some people a loss at any stage is still is still a baby and that's fine it's it it depends how you feel and I think that's that's the difficult thing about grief there's really no generalizations and I think for that reason there are always going to be triggers and there are always going to be things that that come back and and make you hurt but I guess it's getting to a point where perhaps firstly they are not overwhelming and it's that is not that is not the everyday thing you are living with and also perhaps it's it's being able to ride with those feelings and feel those feelings and then let go of them I guess and and keep going on living your life yeah and you know what I I think something that I was that just came to me as you were talking it's after a while it becomes difficult to distinguish what's like there are things that are triggered by your grief that are actually I was saying this before that are actually not related to your grief it's just that that situation has triggered them so let me take this a step further my, my example with my sister-in-law so the way that she was treating her body was not the way that I would treat mine if I was pregnant. And that was triggering to me, but there are tons of moms out there now who are triggered by, you know, they go over to to someone's house and they're not disciplining their child in the way that they would discipline or they're not. And it doesn't matter if they have a kid or not. Um, they wouldn't feed their kids so much candy. So that's triggering to them. And they go home and talk about you know, it to their husband and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much cake she let that kid eat at the birthday party or whatever it is. We're all, we are all then triggered by that, that trigger that I felt with my sister-in-law becomes another one later on. It's just, it's disguising itself in different ways. Mm. So it's, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but it's, it's something that I felt that I needed to it, it was something that was coming up because she was pregnant, but it wasn't actually related to me being envious of her pregnancy because I wanted to have a child. It was related to me not agreeing with the way that she was taking care of herself and her baby, which I think is a slightly different thing. Yeah, and that, that does make sense. And it does, I have actually been listening to, I'm going off on a slight divergent again, but I've recently listened to a book called, and I can't remember the exact title, I think it's The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read, which is about how our sort of childhood experiences create these triggers for specific situations when we are parenting our own children. And I think it's very similar to kind of 
to, to some of the things you said in terms of the actual sometimes the root cause of that trigger is is not necessarily relating to your loss it's got a deeper cause within you and that might be feelings of shame or guilt or uh, you know anxiety or expectation or whatever it is that kind of goes right back into your past and and certainly for me in my experience of grief some of the kind of I guess the sharpest points of that grief is is relating to kind of some of those feelings of shame and guilt rather than you know not it's not just the kind of the sadness and the loss of my daughter there are there are also those kind of ugly emotions and things in there as well um which i do think exacerbate it so that that does make sense um i'm afraid i'm gonna have to call a halt because we are we're over time but we were having we such a good are. discussion that i didn't want <laughs> i didn't want to cut short um so i'm afraid we do have to wrap up but would you like to finish by telling people where they can find you and your podcast and your program and everything about you online Definitely. Yes. I'm on Instagram at miscarriage, love and loss. And I have a Facebook group that's called the same thing, miscarriage, love and loss. And then I don't know if you want to post this in your, in your show notes, Allison, I have a free roadmap to, from grief to joy after miscarriage or pregnancy loss. And, uh, that's on my website at sherryjohnson.ca. Perfect. I will include all the links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on, Sherry. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You too. That was a a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.